Tonight's passage is from the book of John, chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Any mic, I guess? Yeah? Any of these work? Yeah. <laughs> I might be doing the same thing, so I'm glad that we had the little paper swapping thing because I could see myself getting in trouble here. So you grab onto that. Yeah. All right. Um, hey, great to see y'all. Thanks for having me. I guess y'all didn't really make that decision, but thanks <laughs> for having me, and um, I'm glad. I can be here with y'all. Let me just start by praying, and then we'll work our way to that passage. So pray with me. Father, we, I do thank you um, for sending your son, Jesus, who is the good shepherd. And I pray that tonight your sheep would hear your voice, that we'd be comforted by it, um, that we would be reminded that you truly are the life giver, the one who gave your life for us. And I pray that it will give us a peace, a security, um, and a sense of who we are that um, would give us strength to move with great purpose um, in the things you've called us to. And so may you speak. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I guess I'm on. Um, anyway, it's great again to be here. I see some familiar faces. Um, I've actually lived in this area for about the last seven years, and as Sid's been here the last, I guess, five, five or six years or something, I've got a chance to come and see what's going on with RUF, and I go to North Cross Church, and so every now and then, somebody from us will come bring snacks or something like that, and so I've got the chance to, to know some of y'all, and so, um, yeah, I'm excited excited to be here, and that's formed some good, positive memories for me here at Davidson, because prior to moving up here seven years ago, 
my only other Davidson experience was when I was a sophomore in college, I think. I played baseball at the Citadel um, for my first two years. And my sophomore year, we were having this great season. We were beating, again, so we are Southern Conference, and not that great. And we were beating teams, NC State, we were knocking off uh, South Carolina. We went down and beat Florida State. And uh, we were nationally ranked. We thought we were somebody. And we came to Davidson, and y'all kindly humbled us and beat us two out of three, and then our season kind of spiraled. <laughs> so thank you. So this is like redeeming those bad memories I have of Davidson. Um, but for real, I am thankful to be here, and like I said, um, I went my first two years of college, was a military experiment um, at, at the Citadel. So if you don't know where the Citadel is, it's in Charleston. Um, my dream was always to play baseball at Clemson, but I ended up at the Citadel. And, uh, um, and I was excited about the chance to play baseball right away, but just if you're not familiar with the Citadel, their big premise is that we're a military school that creates leaders, and we create the whole man, and now whole women too. As I was, actually when I had come, I think that was the fourth year, prior to four years before I was there, it was actually a male-only school, so um, yeah, anyway, that's that story, but their whole premise is they were going to create the whole person. And so the first year, what they have to do, though, is just break you down. And so they want to make you feel like a nothing. So you, you, know, you walk in the gutters, and you're, you got to look straight ahead, and you're walking, uh, what do they call it? Oh, I forget the term, 340 or something. But you're supposed to walk like 340 steps a minute. Um, but it creates this great environment that, especially if you were, um, and this is an overstatement, but a nobody in high school, you can come to the Citadel, and if you just you know, figure out the system, you can have power. And people listen to what you do, and these guys that come in as freshmen, you can just be all over them. And so, as a freshman, that's no fun when you're walking and a guy's girlfriend calls or something and breaks up with him and he just storms out and then he makes your life miserable for the next two hours. So, you get to experience that um, a lot. And there's a lot of examples I think of. I remember one time I had baseball practice and I was already late, but I had forgotten something. I don't know if it was my glove and I put it in my room. But you always in the afternoon try to stay away from the barracks because if you walked in the barracks, you know, guys, those guys were just sitting out there waiting for somebody and you're just fresh meat. But I had to walk in there to get my glove. So I walk in and he knows, like, oh, they, there's this rift kind of between the core cadets and athletes. And I could tell this one guy's like, oh, fresh meat, an athlete, and he's in here in the afternoon. So he went on to stop me and you know, was yelling at me and making me do all these just stupid moves and uh, um, just for his own entertainment, knowing that it was just killing me because I was going to hear it from my coaches when I got to practice. Um, anyway, that's kind of just a glimpse of kind of a little bit of what went on at the Citadel. And the Citadel really was a good school, and it did develop leaders, but it also created this ground for a lot of bad leaders, a lot of people that you saw that they were just leading out of their own insecurities, and it wasn't fun being under a leader like that, um, but also when I was at the Citadel, I had a baseball coach, Coach Mack, he was my infield coach, and he's, uh, yeah, he was just a great coach, he was one of those coaches, he was a player's coach, and so um, right from the time I got there, he wanted to get to know me and what, what were my interests and what really got me excited about baseball and he spent extra time with me after practice just just pouring into me, going back over the things I needed to get better with, um, better at. And man, he was such a life-giving coach. Like for Coach Mack, I was, I was willing to run through a wall for him. Now the guy in the barracks, I was doing everything I could to avoid him. And so at the Citadel, I got two different perspectives of what good leadership was and what kind of leader do I want to be under? What kind of person do I want caring for me? What kind of person do you want caring for you? That's obviously kind of a rhetorical question, but this is the comparison that we get when we look at um, the passage in John 10 that was just read. But to understand a little bit of the context of why Jesus goes into this metaphor of the good shepherd, we've got to understand what has just happened. And in John 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples, 
and they come across a man who'd been blind from birth. And so the disciples are wondering, hey, was this man a sinner or were his parents a sinner? Like, what's up with this man? He's blind. There must be sin. You know, something, something wrong's going on. And Jesus says, it's not that he has sinned, but it's actually that I may display the works of God, that you may see my, my power. And so he takes some dirt. This is how Jesus chose to do it. He spits in the dirt, makes mud, puts it on his eyes, and goes and tells him to wash in the pool. And he washes and is cleansed, and he can see. And the neighbors are like, what is going on here? Is that really the guy? And so in their confusion, they take him to the Pharisees, who are the power, the religious, powerful leaders. And so they get him to tell a story. And he tells this story, and they're like, no way. This is bogus. There's no way that this man is from God who did this. He did it on the Sabbath, and we know how the Sabbath works. We've defined the rules. We call the shots. This man can't be from God. And so they're like, all right, well, let's go get his parents. And so this kind of trial goes back and forth in a sense. Um, and the parents are like, hey, we know this is our son. He was blind. But they were, they were afraid of the power players, the, the Pharisees. And so they say, well, go back and ask our son. And so the son says, hey, all I know is I was blind, and now I see. And so the Pharisees kept pushing on and pushing on until finally they cast him out. And Jesus has this encounter with him where he worships him. And he sees Jesus as he is the life giver. He's the one who gives sight to the blind. And so following that, Jesus goes into our passage today to explain. Um, he goes in this passage to explain that, to speak into what had just happened in John 9. So before I read the beginning part again, as we look at this passage I want to see that in this broken world, there are many leaders, per se. The religions, strategies in life, ways of dealing with this broken world that will promise you much, but under-deliver. In this passage, I want us to see that Jesus truly is the good shepherd who's come to give you life, and life abundant, full of grace, grace that you can find nowhere else. So Jesus brings our attention to that. And that's what I really want you to get, to see that in him there is joy and freedom that you can rest in. That the Christian faith enlarges your life. It enlarges your life. And so I want us to see that. And we're going to do that by just looking at the different uh, characters in this metaphor. Jesus gives us some different characters, and so I just kind of want to touch on the different characters, and hopefully um, uh, we can see this through through John 10. So Jesus started out in the first six verses, and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name and leads them out. When he has brought Sorry. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. The figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And so Jesus starts off following this encounter in John 9 of him being a shepherd and him having sheep. Now, if you've grown up in the church or grown up with many Bible lessons, we hear talk about the sheep. A lot of times the children's church talk about the sheep. And so you'd be familiar that obviously sheep are not really looked on as these, these great things you necessarily want to be. They're wanderers. Isaiah, the prophet, said we all have gone astray. We all are like sheep and have gone astray. We wander. They're stupid. Um, they're totally vulnerable. They're defenseless. Um, it's not something we would aspire to be. And yet also in this passage, we see that there's this positive idea here. That the sheep that hear the voice, they have a shepherd. One who would give his life for them. These sheep have somebody um, who is always looking after them. They have someone to follow. They have someone that gives them life, gives them purpose, gives them um, direction. And they understand their need. 
con- some commentaries that I was reading just to get an idea of what shepherding looked like in this day. Um, I learned a lot of different things, which we'll talk about some even later. But a lot of times the shepherds, um, just so they could have a common place that sheep could all sleep at night, um, would have a fold where maybe multiple uh, shepherds would come and bring their sheep. And so all the sheep would be in this fold. Uh, and in the morning, the shepherd would just walk in, call the sheep by name, and just by hearing their voice, only that shepherd's sheep would then follow them out. That those sheep knew the voice of their Savior. They knew the voice of their shepherd. Um, and they knew their need. Uh, they knew their need um, of their shepherd. And so they would get up and follow. And so my question, even as we think about the sheep, as we start, I don't think we can get the significance of having a good shepherd unless we really know that we're sheep. That we really know that we're vulnerable. That we really know that we're needy. That we're not as maybe as independent as we think. That we actually need an excellent leader. We need someone to look after us. We need a coach who will take the time to know us and love us and lead us. Just like any 12-step recovery program, right? What, what, when you start a 12-step recovery program, what do you start with? When you say your name, say that say you're an alcoholic or whatever, you say that you in yourself are powerless, that you need something outside of yourself to rescue you. And that's what the sheep are totally dependent on, an outside rescuer. And daily at the core of who we are, we must remember that we didn't create ourselves and ultimately we can't create the end of our story. We are dependent creatures and dependent on God's provision, his grace, and really for him to name us. So what voice do we listen to? Who do we follow? Because daily we're bombarded with voices telling us, this is what you should live for. This is what life's about, right? This is what makes you valuable. This is what makes you important and truly loved. And so practically as we, before we start talking about the thief and the good shepherd, what are the voices that are most attractive to you? Which ones are loudest to you? What do you feel the most pull in your life? Like, man, if I lose this. I know for me, even just in ministry, man, if I want to know that I'm significant. And so I want to, in ministry, know that I'm having an impact. And I can feel that. And when I fail at that, I feel it. And I'm tempted to think that it names me. That it tells me who I am. And I'm seeing this more and more, even as a parent, I have kids, and when you take your kids out, they can act a fool sometimes, and it's easy to think, oh, you know, like my kid's behavior names me, that it tells me who I am, or people's approval, but I ask you, what is it for you? Where do you feel the pressure to perform to prove your ultimate value as a person, or you feel that you have to perform to be loved and accepted? I don't, know. I don't know your lives. I would, gla- I would guess one is the classroom. It's that pursuit of that one particular job, maybe that one particular relationship, or to have a certain social media look. It's this 24-7 promotion of who you are. I'm not sure what it is for you, but what is that? What's the loudest voice in your life that has the most weight? Um, so in, that, in the first six verses... Jesus sets this up basically saying that there's a life stealer, the thief, and there's a life giver, the good shepherd. One has the authority to give it and one doesn't. There's sheep that will hear that voice. And then there's others that won't. And they, and they, don't, get, um, they don't get this. So he, he goes on to further explain this metaphor in the next, well, up to verse uh, 21. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. One more time. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a sheep, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay my life, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. And so Jesus sets up this contrast, right, of um, a leader you want to follow, we could say, or who is, who is going to be that ultimate voice. And so it really is this idea of uh, the Pharisees, is to put this works-based righteousness requirements on you, this performance-based mindset of living, or him, the good shepherd, the one full of grace and truth. And so he gives these characteristics of the Pharisees that we saw in John 9, and he calls them a thief or a robber, that they have um, no right to the authority by which they try to impose these regulations on people, and that their purpose is only to steal, kill, and destroy. He calls them a stranger, and that they're to flee from him, and he calls him a hired hand. That when danger comes, he runs. He's nowhere to be found when the rubber meets the road, because um, he really doesn't care for the sheep. Now, Eric, if y'all got to know Eric, Eric's like a big time runner. Super runner. I saw him running, um, when was that? In November, he ran a, uh, a half marathon. He was, well, he won it. And he was just, I was so <laughs> super impressed um, by him. But I, so I'm not Eric, but I used to really like to run. And so I was actually in Thailand for a, a summer. And uh, at that time, I was actually running some marathons or was getting ready to or something. So I tried to run that summer. But Thailand, there's like, like mangy wild dogs everywhere, and so I had a guy on our mission team that went on a, a run, and uh, a dog bit through his uh, calf, and I've had, in my childhood, I had some bad experiences with dogs, and uh, so I'm kind of like ashamed to say it, but I'm really not like the biggest dog person, but if I know your dog and we are good, then I'm fine with it, but I'm always skittish with dogs. So Thailand was like this huge uh, step of faith even just walking outside because there's dogs everywhere. But anyway, that's a little bit beyond the point of the story. The point is I would go on these runs, and one time I was running um, by this alley, and like a pack of dogs kind of just, I mean, they were moving down that alley. And it took me all, about two seconds, and I was across the highway that I was running alongside, and there's cars whizzing by, and you know, the whole pack of dogs you know, stop right before they got run over by the cars, but somehow I made it. And there's a few times, even when I was running with other guys, right when I saw a dog that seemed aggressive, I was on the other side of the road. By the end of the summer, I was running actually with dog spray, so <laughs> one dog did get sprayed, but um, anyway. But now, I really don't run as much, um, but I do have um, three girls, and um, they're actually six, four, and two, and I have a Bob stroller thing. So you wouldn't have the Bob trailer, but <laughs> I, got, I don't know. But um, I pile them all in there, and there's been multiple times where I've been running, and um, a dog has come up. And to my surprise, instead of like doing like I did in Thailand, I'll put on the brakes and I'll get in between the dog and my girls, because nothing's going to get my girls, and I don't care if he has to eat through my whole body. And if he does that, then he get the girls. But I'm as long as I can um, to protect my girls. And in Thailand, it was like, my buddy, he's big enough to defend, you know, he can defend for himself. I'm going across the interstate, and he can deal with the dogs. But not with my girls, because I love them. They, there's nothing, it's, yeah, it's an amazing love that I have for my girls. And Jesus is already setting this picture like, 
Are you really going to buy into the lie to live for that? That performance-based living? Or live under the, the harsh taskmasters of the Pharisees? They're just going to take from you. I love you. I'll give my life for you. And so Jesus says this, and what he's saying is that the Pharisees' works righteousness, or even our performance-based living, will only take. That voice is, oh, I always have to have this status, or this certain success, or this appearance. It will always be asking more and more and more of you. And so we see this in the way we live our life that way, and we definitely see it today just in religion itself. And if we study... I'm not going to this study of world religion, but we look at religion in and of itself. It's always asking you to perform. Do this, and this is the reward. Do this. Obey this philosophy or this way of life, and then you get this. You get your reward. Um, and it can even happen in um, kind of skewed views of Christianity. Actually, my wife this past week was talking to a lady and her heart just broke for her she'd grown up in this Christian church but in this Christian church they had set so many extra biblical rules on her rules like we don't celebrate anything um, they had all kinds of crazy rules about marriage that's nowhere to be found in the Bible they were really hard like you don't do this this and this and I don't even want to get into it was, it was crazy the particulars of, of clothing and you can't do this and can't do that and can't observe this holiday or this and this poor girl had tried to live her whole life, and so much she loved her family and loved the people in that church. But she did everything to try to abide, but she couldn't live up to the standard. It finally crushed her, and she was in this place of depression and didn't know what to do. And, and ultimately, she ended up getting kicked out. And so she's lost her family. She's lost um, the friends that she had in this church, and she was talking to my wife, just not even knowing what to do. Um, with herself, and I don't know if that's your story, or you've had a bad church experience, that's a pretty extreme church experience, um, but I hear these often, um, actually even listen to a podcast that I like to listen to, and they're um, interviewing this guy, and he had a very similar experience, that he grew up in the, a church that was very Pharisaic, um, just a, a condemnation tone to them, that the people in power were always trying to ex- ex- sort their authority over them. You're not allowed to ask any questions. Um, This guy was talking about how even racist the church was, but he said when he grew up, he just saw God as this cosmic policeman. Just this God who was trying to make sure you got it all right. And if you didn't, it's coming. And so eventually, again, he also um, left the church and he rejected anything to do with the Christian faith. And all these mindsets say, if you obey, then you'll be accepted. But because we're broken, and because probably a lot of these rules aren't even God-glorifying rules, we can't live up to it. And yet, this performance-based, obey and then you'll be accepted, um, rings. And it rings true in our hearts. And even if you haven't uh, been in a church like that, maybe you don't even, maybe that's one reason you don't like religion in general. We all can live with this philosophy in our life. This philosophy that says, if I perform, then it will prove who I am. If I live up to the test, then I know I'm somebody. Or I'll create my own identity, my own purpose, my own value. But you're still doing the same thing. Because the ultimate problem with this religious mindset is that it's vulnerable. And in the end, it can't deal with the ultimate judgments of this life. It can't deal with your own sin problems evil itself and with ultimate death that awaits us all. Not your studies, not your future career, no social activism, no performance on the ball field, no relationship. So how do we know if we have this mindset? I think probably as I've been talking already, you can already pick up on things um, where you might have this mindset, but just even to help you a little bit, I thought of two questions. How do you respond when any of these voices or any of these areas of your life fail you or you fail them? Say it's a relationship and that falls apart. Obviously, that should affect you. 
but does it wreck you? Do you not know who you are anymore? Or if you didn't get that job, or you didn't get that grade, is it upsetting? Or does it destroy you? Is that where, what you look for? Do you lose a sense of who you are? So you got that question. How do you respond when it fails you or you fail it? And then the other is, where do you experience false guilt? And by that I mean guilt that's really not legitimate. Like guilt even before this moral sense of guilt before God that is not even something that he requires um, of you. But just because you want to have control or you might be exposed, you feel this weird sense of guilt that really has no true basis. For me, a lot of times I can feel guilty after leading a small group and I always feel like I've got to be the perfect leader. And the small group, because we're people and we're messy, doesn't go exactly how I think it should. And I feel guilty. Oh, I'm not the leader I should be. And it's really, it's not like God's disappointed that I didn't have words that I didn't even know or but I can just kind of be um, overwhelmed by that and get very introspective um, and thinking that in some way that would save me or if I, I do like working out, if I skip the workout or I don't know what's going on in every political arena and you know what all the conversations are, I can feel guilty and it's, it's not warranted as if if I knew that, then that would give me peace and security and things I ultimately need. So what is it for you? Maybe it's, man, it's so hard for me just to take time away from studying, to be with friends. I know I need relationships, but man, what if I waste time studying? What does that say about me? Or maybe you really need time just to be alone, be away from people, be away from productivity, but you feel this pull that if I'm away from my friends, this will happen, or if I'm away from studying. So where do you experience the false guilt? Because the thief comes and tells you, you better keep all this together because the verdict's coming. You better perform. You better not mess up. You better not um, let him down. Um, so the other day, I'll drive my daughter to school, and I gave her a little theology of competition lecture. She's very competitive, just like me, and she has these tendencies of perfectionism, just like I do. So we've had to do some different things, like play Uno, and I've had to beat her significantly in Uno, just to teach her how to lose it a little bit. And it's been great. She really, she is a wonderful, well, yeah, beating her great. <laughs> um, but she's great, and it's, um, it's actually been really neat. But the other day, we were talking about something when I was driving her to school, and I gave her, uh, I told her about Chariots of Fire. If you know, Eric, do you like the movie Chariots of Fire? Yes, that's great. <laughs> um, but if you don't know the movie, I think it was like a 1981 movie, but it was, it's, uh, it's about the uh, 24, 1924 Olympics in Paris, and it highlights two runners from Britain, um, uh, Harold Abrahams and Eric Little. And uh, the gist is they had two different, kind of talk, you get to know who they are and kind of what motivates them, what drives them. And Harold Abrams is a very driven runner, very good runner. But he even says in the movie that there's a secret called contentment, and he has never figured out where contentment could be found. He says, I have forever pursued it, but in all my chasings, I don't even know what I'm going after. And before the Olympics, he told his friend, he said, now, now in one hour's time, I will be out there again, and I'll raise my eyes, and I'll look down that corridor, it'll be four feet wide, and with ten lonely seconds, have to justify my existence. Will I? And he just felt the fear and the anxiety because his performance was going to be the verdict of his life. So the movie kind of builds him in this picture. And then you have Eric Little, who, um, well, you can watch the movie. I'm tempted to tell you too much about the movie and get away from my point. And Eric Little, he says, but I believe that God has made me for a purpose. And he's also made me fast. And when I run, 
I feel the pleasure of God. And see, in Eric Little, we see that he knew whose he was. That God had made him and given him a purpose, and he didn't run to try to find a verdict. He knew what the verdict was. He was a child of God who had given, this, given him this unbelievable gift to run. So he's going to run, and he's going to run hard, and he wants to beat Harold. But he ultimately does it because he enjoys the verdict's already been, he's been named already. He's a child of God. And so he's able to live his life with this joy and this peace and this grace and this contentment that Harold never knew. And so Jesus in our passage says, Yeah, the thief comes just to take, just to take. I come, and I can give you life. Kent Hughes says that when Jesus says that he's the good shepherd, he says that everything in the way of being rightful and complete, um, protective ownership, this amazing, intimate, intuitive knowledge, and limitless, devoted, self-sacrificing love, this is all wrapped up in what it means that Jesus is the good shepherd. Because the good news that Jesus is our good shepherd is the antithesis of this performance-based living. When we see how Jesus, as the good shepherd, relates to his people, what does Jesus say when he speaks of um, him being the good shepherd? He says that the sheep hear his voice. He speaks to us. He wants to speak to us. And he gives us his word to tell us what's true and to guide us and to name us. And as the good shepherd, he names us. He gives us an identity. Don't we all like to be named? Even when you see somebody you haven't seen in a long time, they say your name. You're named. You're known. You're loved. And the Good Shepherd leads us. This isn't just a one-time prayer. He's inviting us to this relationship. Well, he'll guide us and take us somewhere and change us and bring us into the world for his purposes. He's doing something. And he says his commands are good. Trust him. Follow him. And notice that he says that he leads. He doesn't drive. He's not a taskmaster. But he compassionately leads us by his grace. And he cares for us in our weakness and our vulnerability. And really, Jesus, when he's talking about the good shepherd, he probably also has in mind a passage in Ezekiel 34 where the Lord told Ezekiel to go uh, and to rebuke the shepherds of Israel. And the passage says that they need to be rebuked because they don't feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick are not healed, the injured have not been bound up, and the strayed have not been brought back. The lost have not been sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there's no shepherd. And Jesus here is saying, no, I care for my sheep. I bind their wounds. I heal their sickness. And what does the stranger do? He, he doesn't even know you. The thief, he doesn't own you. The hired hand, he doesn't love you. But we get a picture of Jesus, the good shepherd, inviting us to relationship, knowing us, loving us. Think about your greatest relational needs. What do you long for the most? You might say all kinds of things. But one thing I know is you desire to be known. And though you might fear it, you desire to be known and loved. And we all long for that. And Jesus says, I know you more than you know yourself. And I love you in a way that you could never imagine. And he says, I've come to give you life and life abundant. Jesus doesn't call us to this miserable existence. He actually promises, we sung about it, but this life of goodness, of richness, of depth, and of beauty, even though it might, it might take on all kinds of forms of suffering, but he's calling us to this rich life of meaning. I told you about the guy, I told you about the, guy, the, the lady that my wife talked to, but I also told you about the guy that I heard his testimony on the podcast, and he rejected the faith because of that Pharisaic-like church that he grew up in. But 
Jesus, the good shepherd, continued to pursue him. And he said as he grew and went on in life, he began to see goodness and beauty um, and the beauty of love. And ultimately, he began to see Christians who were living a life that wasn't one that would shrink your life and condemn your life, but one that actually enlarged life. He saw Christians who were willing to go to the least of these and serve them. Christians um, that were sacrificing joyfully, going in um, to, to heal the sick and to care for the poor. And he gave many, or he gave some examples of this, and ultimately it led him to seeing it. Why is this? Because that's what Jesus does for us. He's the good shepherd who gives life. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I've come to give you life. Where you're hurting, where you're needy. Do you see your need? Because I've come to give you life. And that's really the effect of, of Christianity. I just want to throw this in here. I saw in a New York Times book review, um, I think you say his name, Tom Bazell. He was um, reviewing one of Bart Ehrman's books. I think it's one of his newest books called The Triumph of Christianity. And Bart Ehrman, you know, he's at UNC. He's a huge critic of Christianity. Now, he grew up uh, in the church, but a huge uh, critic of Christianity and not a Christian. Um, but he, has, he, he he's looking into why did Christianity take off like it did? It was such a small movement in the first century and then rapidly um, grew. And one thing that he said, he said, so this is the quote. Uh, he says, so how did Christianity triumph? And this is in the book review. He said, to put it plainly, Christianity was something new on this earth, and it, didn't clo- it wasn't closed off to women. And it was so concerned with questions of social welfare, like healing the sick and caring for the poor, that was embedded in its doctrine. And what um, Ehrman in his book realized if really, if you study a lot of um, um, the reform movements, uh, if you study a lot of the movements of caring for the poor and um, building hospitals and caring for uh, the least of these, so many a times it goes back to find its roots in Christianity and to the man Jesus Christ. Um, and to me, that's just an amazing thing. And I think it comes because this is the work of Jesus. So. That's what the work of his people are, to be agents, life-giving agents, moving into need for redemptive purposes. And so as we near the end here, I do want to ask, where do you need to hear the joy-producing words of the Good Shepherd? I know personally for me, I often am fearful and anxious. My wife will even tell you a lot of times, I'm like, oh, what's wrong with me? I have this perfection. I feel like I have to achieve a certain status to be okay. And Jesus says, no. You're okay because you're mine. You're okay because I love you. You're okay because I gave my life for you. You're okay. See, the picture we get from the thief is one that leads to fear and anxiety and pressure. You're on trial. Will you live up? Can you do it? The anxiety builds. The good shepherd says, no, the verdict's out. We'll see what it is. But you're mine. You're loved. No one can snatch you from me. And so nothing, your own sin, the brokenness of this world, evil, and death itself can separate us from his shepherding care. And I do love Psalm 23. We've all probably heard it at some point. And I know in my life I kind of thought of it as, that's one of those good psalms, like it's good for a coffee mug or, you know, my grandma might have it on her you know, wall in the kitchen. I'm slowly more and more loving this psalm. And maybe it was just because it's, we see it so much. But David was a shepherd himself. He knew what the real threats of life were. And he knew what it was like even as king for people to be, um, as a shepherd, he knew what it was for the threat of wild animals. And then as the king, people were trying to take his life. And yet... There was this peace and this confidence that he had as he talked about the Lord being his shepherd. So I just want to read Psalm 23 and listen to it anew. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He knows my needs better than I know my own. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me by still water. He'll give me provision and rest. He restores my soul, and he leads me in paths of righteousness. He leads me into goodness and truth and beauty. He fills my soul. And why? For his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He is closer and more real than your biggest threats. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm secure. I'm at peace. So how can this be true? And the last point is because Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, but I'm also the door. And I always wondered, why did he mix his metaphors there? Um, and I was reading in Campbell Morgan's commentary on the Gospel of John, but he shares this insight when he came across an Old Testament scholar by the name of George Adam Smith. And this is what he said um, when he was talking, or this is what the Old Testament scholar said. He was one day traveling with a guide and came across a shepherd and a sheep. And he fell into a conversation with him, and the man showed him the fold into which the sheep were led at night. And it consists of four walls with a way in. And Sir George said to him, um, That is where they go at night? Yes, said the shepherd. And when they are in there, they are perfectly safe. But there is no door, said Sir George. The shepherd said, I am the door. He was not a Christian man. He was not speaking of this New Testament passage. He was actually speaking from an Arab shepherd's standpoint. Sir George looked at him and said, What do you mean by the door? Said the shepherd. And when the light has gone, he said, when the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie down in the open space. And no sheep ever goes out but across my body. And no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. See, that's the door the shepherd was willing to lay down his life, right? He laid in the door so no sheep could leave and no threat of wolf could come in. And here we get to see why Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and I'm the door. See, he says that no sheep can go out um, because I'm the door. And no threat can come in, not because I'm willing to give my life. He actually says in this passage in verse 18 that no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus didn't risk his life. He came to give it for you. He laid his life down that you can be his. He was crucified. He was abandoned. He was rejected so that you never would be. And so this Good Friday, this week, I want us to consider that. That's my challenge to you. Consider Jesus, who was in heaven, who had heard the praises of the angels say, holy, holy, holy. He left heaven, was born in a manger, lived this life, was rejected, was mocked, went through an unjust trial, where they didn't say, holy, 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 what they say? Crucify him! Crucify him! And he died a criminal's death. And worst of all, he took the wrath of God for us. For all the ways that we have bought into the lives of a thief. All the ways that we have looked to other things. And only cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he took that so that you never would be forsaken. And so what does this mean? As he is the good... As he is the door and the good shepherd, he'll never let you go. If you are his sheep, you're totally secure. He gave his life to defend you from the things that you couldn't defend yourself from. Your own sin, the evil one, death itself. And I want to make two more points on what this means for us. And the other thing is that everything that comes into your life has gone through the hands of the good shepherd. Remember, he laid, he laid down at the door. Nothing comes in. There's suffering, there's circumstance, that he is not right there with you. And last of all, he's still pursuing his sheep. The ones that he laid his life down for, I love this. In verse 16, he says, um, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's really speaking like to the Gentiles. This mission of bringing the gospel and, um, to all 
to the ends of the earth. And he says, I must bring them in. Jesus is still pursuing his sheep. He will get his sheep. He says he must. And that's good news. That he might be the one shepherd of the one flock. And I love this picture that we get at the end. Um, we get in Revelation of the end time where the good shepherd, the shepherd, he's the lamb that laid his life down. He says this in Revelation 7, that he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we need a shepherd. And I thank you that we have one. And that you meet us, even as we see in Psalm 23, in the valley of darkness, where we might think that we have been abandoned, where we have been forgotten, that you went to the depths of darkness. That we can know no matter where we are, you are with us. Lord, I pray that we would hear that tonight. That we are yours. And because we're yours, we're okay. I pray that you would apply that to our hearts in Jesus' name.